All right, welcome back. This is Will with Whiskey in the Word, and today I want to look at some passages on the resurrection. Um, you know, this is an often forgotten doctrine. It's a uh, overlooked, neglected, not talked about enough. Uh, it, it's sad to me because it's one of the major tenets of the faith. It's one of the the major doctrines, core foundation of Christianity. And yet, most people don't even think about it, aren't aware of it. Uh, even if, like, uh, I have the Apostles' Creed up here. Um, if you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, you should look it up, read it, get familiar. But uh, it's one of the f- the first creeds that the church agreed upon as a statement of what we believe. And I'll just read the whole thing to you and highlight the last part of it. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and here it is, the resurrection of the body and and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, I have another one up here, the Nicene Creed. Um, I'm going to skip. It's, it's very similar uh, to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but then it says, uh, it's last line, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of of the world to come, Amen. Um, there's another. There's a. There's also the. Uh, I don't know if everybody loves the Westminster Confession of Faith, but there's also that which was uh, came out of the Reformation in 1646, and it says. And now it's way longer. We're definitely not going to read that whole thing, um, but in what they titled Chapter 32 of the State of Man After Death and of the Resurrection of the Dead. Uh, They write, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. And then point two, it writes, At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And then, Point three under this chapter, they write, The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just, by his spirit unto honor, and be made com- uh, conformable to his own glorious body. And the reason I share that is just to show that this is, a, this is not some side issue. Uh, today, so many side issues are talked about even more than this, like shouldn't the foundations of our faith, the tenets of what would be the core of what we're hoping for. I mean, this is what biblical hope is. 
I don't have this up, but I'm going to pull it up really fast. Uh, Titus 2. See how fast I can find it. I think it's 11 to 14. Uh, yeah, there it is. It says this. Titus 2, 11 to 14 writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, for his zealous for good works. Now, back in line, verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Foundational to our hope, the Christian hope isn't just being fulfilled in this life and fulfilling all this stuff. And it's not just about us in this age. The Christian hope is based on when Jesus comes back and what happens at his return. Uh, and that's uh, in concordance with uh, the resurrection of the dead happens at that same time period. Um, there's a couple passages I hear of here that are, uh, I can't wait to get to Romans 8 actually, because it's often, I don't think I've ever heard anybody teach Romans 8 with regard to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, I've heard it talked about often, and uh, but not in that regard. Uh, so I want to bring out those points today. Um but let's start with 2 Corinthians, I mean, yeah, 2 Corinthians, I think this is chapter 5, uh, verse 2. Uh, we could just start in verse 1. Uh, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 3, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, uh, you're reading this the way I'm reading this. Tent, he's speaking of their physical bodies here, right? He's talking about the earthly bodies and they're groaning to put on that resurrected body. That Christ has demonstrated and he has currently on right now. He's saying, hey, one day you're going to have that. You're going to be fully clothed. You're not going to be unclothed. You're not going to be just be a spirit floating around without a fleshly body. You're going to have a body that's going to be clothed, right, in flesh. That, but that's not corruptible. It's going to be swallowed up by life. Uh, it'll never die again. And God's prepared this. And his spirit in us right now is the guarantee that that's going to happen. It's the first down payment of a promise that will be fulfilled on the day Jesus returns and we see him in the sky. Then we get our resurrected bodies uh, in the, the blink of an eye, is what scripture says. Um, so now we're going to let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I'll start in verse 12. And then we'll go to Romans 8. But let's start with that. So verse 12 says this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and I, I'm trying to show this a little bit, to show, look at the foundational thought. Uh, so far we've looked at what Paul's wrote in, uh, written. Uh, how did this shape the way he thought about things? I mean, 
I'm convinced that it was a foundational thought that uh, laid the groundwork for much of his theology and what he believed. And I think Jesus is the one who laid that foundation. And when I read this, I think how often, how different do we process uh, the gospel narrative, not in light of this. What's common for most people to think is that, hey, Jesus died on a cross. Uh, I get forgiven my sins. He raised from the dead. That makes him really God. He's not like not God because he raised from the dead. So now I know it's true and I will really be forgiven of my sins. And when I die, I'm going to go and live in heaven forever. And that's the summation of the gospel that they understand. Um, and that's sad to me that that's what is the most common gospel that I know that people understand. Uh, that is not the fullness of what the scriptures teach. This is because we're, we're malnourished in scripture. We're malnourished in the biblical text. And we have, we've, we've lived off milk in the American church for so long. That's all we get taught. That's all we think about. And then since one day we're going to go to heaven, might as well live it up good now. Cause Hey, this is the only time I have on the earth to live in my natural body, blah, blah, blah. And I think it feeds into that health, wealth, prosperity type gospel because we don't understand, right? What we're going to have, uh, eternally with Christ on the earth. Uh, so back to the text here, Paul. So getting in their mindset and how they thought about things instead of importing what we think about Christianity and the resurrection into the text. Uh, so here, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, right? So Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. So they're making Paul saying, hey, what's the big point we get to make from this? What's the, the theological conclusion you should derive from this? How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So let's reverse that. Paul's theologizing that if Christ raised from the dead, the, one of the major points to take away from that as a Christian, as someone who follows Christ, is that that must mean that all those who believe in them believe in him, their bodies too will be resurrected from the dead one day also. That's the conclusion he drew from that. That one of the major points of Christ raising from the dead is that he's a first fruits. It's the guarantee that you and I, assuming that you believe in Christ, your body will raise from the dead one day. And so he goes on. And so he's, he's exasperated saying, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of Christ dead? That's illogical to Paul. If he died, of course, and he raised from the dead, then of course we're going to be raised from the dead in essence. And then verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's such an intense statement to make. He's making the reverse argument, right? He's saying, hey, if you claim there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ wouldn't even raise from the dead. You've misunderstood what happened with Christ raising from the dead. That's crazy. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Why is it in vain? Why is it vanity? It's vanity because this is our hope. This is what the whole gospel is going towards. It's not a dream that one day you'll flow away and fly and be in heaven and sipping lemonade with little umbrellas in it on a cloud somewhere forever. It's that your body will be raised from the dead and you'll be on the earth with Christ forever. That's the hope. And he says, that's why it's vanity if it's otherwise. If it's just this some form of this Gnostic gospel, we're just going to be spirits floating around forever. He's like, that isn't the gospel. 15. Verse 15. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God if that's what we teach. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is if it's true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's how huge this is to Paul. The resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus without these two things and they both demand the other. If Christ raised, it demands that there's going to be a resurrection of us and if there's a resurrection of us, it demands that Christ had to be raised. And he says, if that didn't happen, Everything we believe is futile. Paul would not have accepted this notion that we're just going to fly away and be in heaven forever. He knows that it's not fulfilled. The promise of the restoration of all things, the restoration of creation, the restoration, the redemption of us and our bodies and our whole being isn't done until we have a resurrected body. And then verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You see, he says, if there's not a resurrection today, if there's not this going to be this one day you're going to get resurrected body, then even those who are dead now, there's no hope for them. Even those in Christ, he says. 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. He said, we should be the most pitied of all people if this is our hope. What are we living for? Um, where's that passage? Uh, I'm looking for it. No, that's not the one I'm looking for. But let's let's jump back here to Romans 8. Uh, really starting in 18, but the argument begins before that. But I'm not I don't want to go through the whole thing. But he's got this argument about flesh. And the word flesh, uh, it can mean multiple things. It can talk about like a fleshly nature, like we're used to thinking about, and it can talk about your physical being, your physical body, right? So it can be both. And actually, in chapter 8 of Romans, I think Paul's kind of playing off of both ideas because they're connected. I think he's saying they're connected. That, that, that nature is connected to your body, and we're, we want the redemption of our whole being. And that's what he's saying Christ is promised uh, by his Spirit in us currently. Um, let's start. I'll start in verse 12. No, let's go back up. Um, yeah, maybe maybe we'll just start in verse 1 and we'll get there. Um, so chapter 8, Romans, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So he condemned sin, right? That desire, that root, that thing in us, in the flesh, in a physical being, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, right? Though we're in these temporary mortal bodies right now we walk according to the spirit because he's put a spirit in us right uh back to verse five of chapter eight for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit um 
And I know some people don't like this idea, but there is this tension between the two that we still have our fleshly bodies that haven't been redeemed, but we have the Spirit of God residing inside of us. And we have to choose as believers what we will let dominate us. Will we walk according to the Spirit who dwells inside us? Or will we walk according to our corrupted flesh, our actual bodies, and what they desire? Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And now, careful here, Uh, That verse is not saying, hey, if you have a physical body that hasn't been resurrected yet, you cannot please God. That is not what that's saying. Uh, Verse 9, you, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So you get that? But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin. So it's as if our physical bodies are corrupted and dead already, right? But you have life nonetheless because the spirit of life, because of the righteousness inside of you because of Christ. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, so there's that big point, Jesus got raised from the dead. If his spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So see, he's not just talking about your fleshly nature here. He's connecting the two in some way, and he's kind of jumping back between them. And he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's saying, right now you have the promise that your mortal body is going to be raised just like Jesus was one day. So verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit are sons of God. All right, connecting it with sons of God. If you live according to spirit, you're son of God. And one day you're going to be resurrected. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit are are. Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's as if the Spirit dwells inside of us and it marks us as children of God that he will resurrect one day. And verse 17, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of what? The promises that God has made all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament saying, hey, one day he's going to restore all of creation. And included with that is the resurrection of our bodies that are currently corrupted. He's going to restore them to life and make them glorified just as Jesus is. And it says that at the end of 17, I'll read it again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I hate to just pass over so fastly that provided we suffer with him like that deserves its own uh, emphasis and discussion but i'm just trying to highlight the resurrection of the dead component and the thought that paul has in the back of his head as he's writing this i'm not saying it's all that he's thinking about here or but it is definitely a core and a foundation of why he's saying what he's saying and it's developing and shaping the way he's thinking in order that we may be glorified with Christ. Christ has already been glorified. He already has his glorified form in the resurrection. He is the only one currently in 
all of creation with a resurrected body. He's the only person, the only human being in heaven currently with a resurrected body. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the first one to be raised from the dead with a glorified body. And one day, we will too get those glorified bodies. But currently, all the believers in heaven don't have them. They're just spirits waiting for the full consummation of all things. Uh, Verse 18 here in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I think that's a huge, uh, I think there probably is much going on there. But clearly, one of the things Paul has in his mind here is that it's the resurrection of the dead. It's the mortal bodies getting swallowed up in life and getting raised from the dead and resurrected and glorified. He says right now the sufferings, his body, I mean, Paul took the the 40 minus 1. He was shipwrecked. I think maybe his hands were mangled, and that's why he wrote in big letters. Possibly his vision was poor from beatings. We don't know. But his body was failing at so many levels. And he says, you know, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So his vision of that resurrected body as part of the glory that's going to be revealed to us motivated and kept him with endurance to persevere through the sufferings of this present time. Without this vision of the resurrection, I don't think we can have the full motivation and godly encouragement that we need to live rightly in this age. We're going to be inept, right? We're not going to have the training that's necessary. We're not going to have the motivation, right, to do it. If we don't know the prize that's before us, why are we running the race? We don't get it. Uh, Because you need to. You need to be a good little boy or girl, and that's why you're going to do it. It doesn't work enough. But if we know the prize that's before us, if we know what it is, it'll motivate us unto godliness in this age right now. Uh, One of the reasons understanding the resurrection of the dead is so critical. All right, back, back to the text. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, th- now we're getting into the area of the text that I have heard taught so many weird ways, right? And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna attempt a full exposition of this and a refutal of every weird thought that people have said on this. I'm only trying to highlight the the thread of thought that Paul has regarding the resurrection of the dead in these verses. So back to verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What he's saying there, he's like, even creation is waiting and longing for the day when you get resurrected. That's what the revealing of the sons of God. It sounds like a real mystical statement. And this is going to get proven as we go down. uh, uh, Verse 23 says the redemption of our bodies. The revealing of the sons of God is that day because he's put his spirit in us. He's marked us as sons of God. But we haven't been revealed as sons of God yet with our glorified bodies saying, hey, that day when Jesus comes back and your body gets raised from the dead or gets changed in the twinkling of an eye, then you're going to be revealed as the sons of God. Right now it's hidden. We don't look any different than anybody else on the planet, right? We could be walking down the street, wherever we are in life. No one knows you're a son of God by the way you look. In your physical body, there's no difference. Right? Just looks like another person. But inwardly, we've been marked by the Spirit as sons of God. He says, hey, creation waits for the day that you guys are revealed when you get your resurrected bodies. And it's made known. And then verse 20 says, for 
The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Here's that connection with biblical hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So creation is currently in bondage to corruption, just like our physical bodies. That's why they deteriorate and die. That's why we have sin, all this stuff. Uh, let's read verse 21 again. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God, our glorified bodies. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation has been longing for this for a long time. What that looks like exactly, I don't want to get into. People have lots of weird speculations. They get caught up on what that looks like and groaning and they don't connect to what is the point? What is the groaning for? I think that's more important. I mean, I'm not against, like, let's figure it out. I love all the details and I love trying to figure it out, but I don't want to miss the big point for a speculative point. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, first fruits, get that. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the first fruits. We have the first fruit of the spirit in us that we're going to be raised from the dead one day grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. There's that theme of sons of God. As sons, as we wait eagerly for adoption, as sons, i.e., and it doesn't say i.e. in the text, but it says the redemption of our bodies. What is the adoption as sons? What does that look like in its fullness? It looks like the redemption of your body. That's what the text says here in verse 23. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. So he's saying, this hasn't happened yet. So somebody says, you've already got the fullness of it. Everything you have, you don't. You're saying, you know, we're not there yet. We're hoping for this still. And if it was seen, we it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Right? And the text goes on and on. But I just want to point out that whole section of Romans 8 underlying the thought that Paul has there that he's writing, he has this foundational belief in the resurrection of the dead and how critical it is and how it ties in with the spirit in us now marking us as sons of God. And one day we'll be fully adopted and will be revealed and our glorified bodies will be made known and it won't be a secret anymore. It won't just be an inward reality. It'll be an external reality also. Now, I, I want to look at one last passage to tie in with this. There's, there's so many more and... Um, Maybe we'll look at those at other times, but this is the last one I want to do today. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in 13. So Paul went to Thessalonica. This is some of the earlier letters that he wrote. And what does he teach them? He teaches them about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, I think if you do the math between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and I've, I've heard this said too, so I'm kind of like winging it here, but I think he was there for like a couple weeks or something. So... You're a missionary, you go to a new place, and what are you going to teach them? He teaches them the resurrection of the dead. Foundational. Foundational belief. Every believer should have an understanding of Every believer should be hoping for, longing for the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Without it, we don't even have a faith. We have nothing without it. It's fundamental to what we believe. So here we go, back to the text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you catch that again in Paul's framework of mind in 14? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he's making much theology of that resurrection from the dead and implying that means that we're going to be raised from the dead. I don't think I would ever have had that thought, and that's how in my Western 21st century brain, I would have processed the resurrection of Jesus saying, oh, yeah, that must mean I'm going to get raised from the dead too if I follow Jesus. Wouldn't have clicked. So I'm thankful for Paul. Thank you, uh, Jesus, for having Paul have that so we would know that. But verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So this kind of follows along with that Westminster Confession of Faith, where it's kind of describing here in verse 14, that Jesus, when he comes back, when he descends out of heaven and with heaven, that he's going to bring back all the disembodied believers with him who are just, who are just in their spirit form. He's going to come back with them. And he says, those who have fallen asleep. So they've fallen asleep. They're in the dirt. Their bodies are in the dirt. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This isn't my good idea. This isn't whatever. This is what the Lord told him. That we who are alive, right? So Paul's envisioning believers who are alive on the earth when Jesus comes back, who are left until the coming of the Lord. He says, they will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What do you mean precede? They won't be the first ones to get their resurrected bodies. He says, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And just side note, that's not everything that happens at that moment. There's other texts that tell us more details, and we put them all together and we get a fuller picture, but we're looking at the resurrection of the dead right now. It says the dead in Christ, at that moment, will rise first. So all the dead bodies of people who believed in Jesus are in the ground right now, and he's really good at People always ask, well, what if they were cremated? What if they're like, what about the decay and bodies? And what about cannibals and all this stuff? Like he can do the math. He can figure it out, right? And their bodies are going to come up out of the grave, out of the ground, right? They're going to go, whew, they're going to raise. Uh, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So they're going to go up to Jesus to meet him in the sky. Not a secret event, not invisible, right? 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, right? Because all the other Christians that were previously dead, they went up. We will then be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love that verse 18. Encourage one another with these words. We're supposed to be encouraging one another with the promise of the resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns. I'm guilty of not encouraging others, and I'm guilty of, I guess I'm not guilty, but I'm the victim of not being encouraged by this from others. So I would just, I encourage us right now to be encouraged by this and to encourage others. And if this is new to you and it's weird to you and it's like, well, yeah, I guess I just haven't really thought about it much. Maybe maybe give more thought to it first. Maybe look at these passages and if you're questioning where I'm saying, like, I don't know, Will, that's not what I think Romans 8 says. Okay, cool. Go back and look at it. I, I don't care that you question what I think. Go. I like that, actually. I want you to be bothered by it. I want you to go digging for yourself and think about it and say, hmm, is that really true? 
Is that really what that flesh means? Is that really what the revealing of the sons of God texts mean? Is it really talking about the redemption of bodies in verse 23 of Romans 8? Do it. Love it. Go do it more. Get those around you. Question. Ask other people. But I would say don't let anybody discourage you from being encouraged by this or loving it, or thinking about it, longing for it. Scripture calls us to long for this. It calls for us to be encouraged by this, to think about this, to have it as the underlying foundation of our hope in Christ. So to that end, I'll let you guys go. Thanks for listening to the whole thing and being there. 